Before I pray for the message today, I want to take a moment and bring you the Global Missions Update, which is what we normally do on the second Sunday of each month. And just because we're in an unusual situation, uh, we don't want to stop that practice. And so as the Lord would have it, our own uh, Ethan and Alicia Larson are up for the Global Update this month. And so I just want to share a couple things with you about what uh, is happening in their lives. And I want to encourage you to take some of the extra time that God has given to you if you're one of those who now has extra time and and to to let your hearts be drawn toward those we support who work around the world. As many of you know, Ethan works for a ministry called Training Leaders International that goes around the world to bring uh, college and seminary level training to pastors who have no access to advanced theological training. I've been with Ethan to Romania three times, and he's been all over the world doing this type of thing. So he works, first of all, as a, as a trainer, they call him, a, basically a mentor of pastors and other leaders. He also works as a site scout and sometimes a site developer or a site leader. And right now he is, uh, I think they call it the, the security and risk management advisor for TLI, which is a huge job. They've got trainers in places all over the world, and so part of Ethan's job is to keep his eyes on security situations, not, not just in one or two countries, but in a whole number of countries all the time. And so it's a big job, it's an important job, and sometimes um, safety and perhaps even someday lives will be at risk. So please be praying for him in that. I'm sure it's a, a weighty um, position that he holds there. I, I mean in his heart, it probably feels very weighty. Right now, obviously, his job for TLI is very important given all that's happening in the world right now. And for the foreseeable future, TLI has had to suspend all of their trips and all of their trainings and sites all around the world. And that's obviously very hard on a ministry that that that's all that they do. So I want to encourage you to pray for Ethan in this regard. Pray for Darren Carlson, the founder and director of TLI in this regard. Pray for the staff. Pray for all their trainers. Pray for their supporters. Pray for the sites around the world that everybody's just sort of in a holding pattern and not really sure how all of this is going to turn out. And you know, when in- education gets interrupted in, in, within a country, it's hard enough. But I think it's all the harder when, it, when education gets interrupted internationally like this. So please just pray. God is greater than any trial we face. And so God will get them through and God will cause them to be fruitful in this time. But please do take of, uh, of your time and pray for our brother and and the ministry for which he works. Also, uh, more specifically about Ethan, he really needs your prayers right now. He got sick a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, and he had the symptoms that look like coronavirus, and since he does travel around the world, it's definitely possible that he has it. It looked like he was getting better there, and then just recently, as of the last day or two, he has um, relapsed again, and so he has all the symptoms again, except for the shortness of breath. And I guess this is typical of the pattern where it will seem like the, of, of coronavirus that is, where you'll have it, it'll seem like it gets better, and then the, the symptoms come back again. So it, it, it's just all the signs are pointing in that direction. And because of that, his entire family has had to be quarantined for two and a half weeks now. And Alicia told me um, the other day that they will have to remain in total quarantine until 14 days after Ethan's illness has, has passed. And right now they don't know when that is. So please pray for them. Please reach out to them through email or by phone. Just let them know you're thinking of them, you're praying for them, that you love them. I don't know what they need um, right now. I'm sure that they're in touch with with their community group and with others. But uh, but again, don't be shy to ask them. Mainly, though, what they need is prayer. And I, and I just encourage you with all of my heart, I encourage you to join us to take some of the extra time that God has given to you and to just take your eyes off of the crisis and your part in it and, and put your eyes on our brothers and sisters here and just cover them in prayer. And speaking of that, let me pray now for them and then I will read the text and we'll get into the message for the day. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your great love for the world. I thank you that you were willing to come into this world and live and die and be buried and be raised again from death so that whoever believes in you from around the world, among all of the nations, will not perish but will have everlasting life. I thank you that you then take some of your 
people and not only equip them to preach the gospel in their local area, but you equip them to go around the world and to train and to preach the gospel and to show the mercy and love of Christ to people who don't know you. Oh God, I thank you for putting your hand of salvation upon Ethan. I thank you for putting your hand of salvation upon Elisha and upon their children. I thank you for calling them together into ministry. Ethan's the one that has the job, Lord, but each of them is involved. Each of them has their part. I thank you for your gracious calling upon them. I pray for TLI in this time, Lord. I pray that in the chaos they would feel all the more the truth that you are not in chaos and that you are not surprised and that you are not wondering what's to come and you're not wondering what to do, but you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the God who is Lord. You are the absolute sovereign over all things and you will do all things well. Oh, Father, fill them with faith in these days. I pray that you would help the support of Ethan and other missionaries like him to be stable, Lord. I pray that they would not plunge into a financial crisis because of all this. And Father, virtually, anyway, we lay our hands on our dear brother and on his family, and we pray your healing power upon them. Oh, Father, you're able to heal any sickness. You are able to free us from any disease. So I pray that you, O oh God, who's greater than the coronavirus, will put your hand of healing upon the Larson family. And Father, help us to speed toward the day when we can see them again, physically see them again, and even hug them again and celebrate with them all the things that you did for them and in them and through them in this time. For how you have sustained them and for what you will do in their family, I thank you in the mighty and merciful and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ethan and Alicia, I want you to know that we love you. When I was trying to work through what I was going to say in the video today, I was really hoping I wouldn't get teary and cry, but I can't help myself because I really love you. I care for you, and your family in Christ cares very much for you. I know that because I've been hearing from people, so just know that you're in quarantine, but you're not alone. We're with you, and we love you. And with that, beloved, if you will please take out the scripture and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read just a few verses with you and then bring the Easter message to you today. I want to bring you the message of a living hope that not even the coronavirus can ultimately shake or take away. So let's read together and rejoice together in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. This is the word of God, and I pray that we will be blessed, not only in hearing it, but now in meditating on it together on this sacred Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reality and the power of what he has done for the glory of your great name and for the eternal salvation of all who believe in you. Oh, Father, please help me now as I bring this message, and please help all of us as we meditate on the details of your words and see more of the details of what you've done. Oh, Father, open our eyes that we may see and feel the power of the gospel and rejoice in who you are. Oh, God, please strengthen our faith and heighten our joy by your word and by your spirit. Now, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Hope. Hope is such an important aspect of life 
because hope is what gives us a sense of meaning in life. It's what gives us a sense of purpose. Hope is what helps us to answer questions like these. What am I doing here? Why am I on the earth? Why is anybody on the earth? Where is humanity heading? Where's all history going? Hope is what helps us to address questions like these. Webster's Dictionary defines hope like this. They say that hope is the cherishing of a desire with anticipation. I really like that definition. I don't think it's actually far off from a biblical definition. It's the cherishing of a desire with anticipation. It is the wanting of something to happen or to be true. So hope is that part of us that looks to the future and not only wants something to come about, but expects that even if exactly what we want doesn't come about, that something is going to come about. And this instinct that is inside of us to look to the future and, and, and hope in the future is actually an irrepressible instinct because God has put it in us. In fact, this instinct is so important to us that if we do not have hope, we lose a sense of purpose, and some of us even lose our resolve to want to live at all. What happens to a body when you deprive it of oxygen? Well, it withers up and dies, does it not? And it doesn't take very long for that to happen. Well, I think something similar happens to a soul when you deprive it of hope. Hope is to a soul what oxygen is to a physical body. Beloved, hope is just that important. We are hardwired by God to need hope. In these days, when we are enduring an unprecedented and worldwide crisis, I think we're learning anew that many, if not most, of the things in which we hope in this world are actually very brittle, and they're temporary, and they can be taken away in a heartbeat. I think we're learning anew in these days that the entire world and all of its systems, all of its priorities, all of its plans can be brought to its knees by a microscopic virus that can't even be seen. We're learning again that many of the things in which we hope are simply not worth hoping for. We're learning anew that we cannot ultimately hope in things like national and international security and stability. We're learning anew that we cannot depend upon financial security and our financial plans and our financial vision of the future. We're learning anew that we cannot depend on physical and emotional health to last for any period of time, much less for a lifetime. In fact, I think we're learning anew that even life itself is fickle. It's not only the coronavirus that is taking the lives of many people, but I think the coronavirus has awakened us to the fickleness of life in many different ways. And ultimately, I actually think this is a good thing. Because you see, if we hope in things that can be taken away, then guess what? Our hope itself can be taken away. If we hope in things that can be brought to their knees by an, an invisible virus, then our hope can also be brought to its knees by things that cannot be seen. And if our hope can be taken away, if our hope can be brought to its knees, then our sense of purpose in life can be taken away, and our sense of resolve to press on in life itself can be brought to its knees. Beloved, hope is just that important, and the world around us is truly that fickle. I hope that we're all understanding that now. The COVID-19 crisis is vast, and it's bleak in a whole number of ways. But I think that the truth of the matter from, the God, from, from God's perspective is that it's really just a massive backdrop against which we can see the hopelessness of this world and the glory of the hope that God has provided for us in Christ. You see, God is not surprised by this crisis. He is not wasting this crisis. From God's point of view, his hope is that we will see reality. Now, many of you listening to this message today have already believed in the fickleness of the world and the strength of the hope of, that we have in Christ, but I hope you'll see it anew, afresh, deeper in your heart with more intensity, with more passion. That you're truly coming to believe that the world can fall like this. You know, in fact, Revelation 18 says that the whole entire world will be brought to an end in a single hour by the Lord. I encourage you, read that chapter, Revelation 18. 
Because if your hope can be destroyed in an hour, if the world can be destroyed in an hour, your hope in the world will also be destroyed in that hour. And so I think for, from the Lord's perspective, he's, he's trying to help us to see reality so that we will believe. Indeed, beloved, the story of Easter is the story of a living hope that God has offered to all men, women, and children if we will only humble ourselves before him and believe in the message of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and receive the great and eternal grace that is available to us in him. The story of Easter is the story of a living hope that is not brittle, that is not temporary, that cannot be taken away, and that cannot be destroyed. It can never be destroyed. The story of Easter is the story of a living hope that God has freely provided to us in the past, that God is presently working in his people right now and that God has promised to deliver to us in all its fullness in the future. The story of Easter is a commemoration. It is a celebration of the present. It is an anticipation of the future. The story of Easter is the story of unshakable, untakeable, indestructible hope. It is the story of living hope. For this reason, Peter, who was one of the early followers of Jesus Christ and who walked with him day by day for three or four years and then came to serve him all the days of his life. He begins his first letter with this amazing declaration. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's heart was that the name of God would be glorified, that the name of God would be exalted, that the name of God would be honored in heaven and on earth and particularly by the people of God. Peter's desire was that we would have eyes to see something of the hope that God has provided for us and that our hearts would be filled with praise because of it. True hope begins, beloved, when we take our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on to God. True hope begins when we turn away from this world and from all the things in the world and all the things that we're hoping in, whether in this age or in the one to come. If we take our eyes off of anything and everything else, any person and every person, and put them on God, well, then our hope will begin. Hope begins by fixing our eyes on God. And that's why Peter started the way he did. Blessed be God. Not us, but blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And having made such an important declaration Peter now gives us several reasons why we ought to do just that, why that is the good and right and proper and life-giving thing to do. So first of all, let's look at the reason he gives in the second part of verse 3 through to the end of verse 5, and let's read those verses again. Peter writes, According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So why is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to be blessed? Well, first of all, his name ought to be honored and exalted and glorified because of the great mercy that he's lavished upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's name ought to be blessed, it ought to be honored, it ought to be exalted and glorified because he has caused everybody who puts their faith in Jesus to be born again. You see, it's not just that God has looked in the future and seen things that we were going to do toward him, decisions we were going to make about him. Peter's saying something much stronger than that. Peter is saying that out of the death that is our lives, God caused us to be born again. None of us had anything to do with our physical birth. Our father and our mother came together in a, in, a, in a physical act, and in this way, God used that process to cause us to be born. And in a similar way, we have very little to do with our spiritual birth as well. And I only put it that way because God does call upon us to exercise faith in him in order to be born again. But we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that even the faith that we exercise in God is a gift from him. And the power that we get to exercise that faith is a gift from him. God has 
caused us to be born again. Life out of death. And for this, his name is to be praised. His name is to be glorified. His name is to be exalted. You see, in the beginning of time, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And as his final act of creation, he fashioned human beings in his image. He made us to be like him. And he made us, uh, to use the word as a verb, to image him, to reflect him to heaven and earth. It's not that we're physically like God. God is not a physical being. But it is that God has given us something of his character. God has given us something of his mind and his affections and his will and his desire for us as human beings was to image him in these ways, to show what it's like to be in community with one another with regard to our thoughts and feelings and our actions. We were created to image God. But the problem with humanity is that our hearts are rebellious, our hearts are self-centered. And rather than submitting themselves to the great and perfect and eternally blessed plans of God for our lives, our ancestors decided to rebel and go their own way. Our ancestors decided that they could improve on God's design. Our ancestors decided that they were going to do things the way that they wanted to do things regardless of what God has said, and so they rebelled. They went their own way. And when they did that, the wrath and judgment of God for sin came upon them because rebelling against God is an infinitely serious thing to do. And the reason that rebelling against God is an infinitely serious thing to do is because God is infinitely great and infinitely glorious and the measure of sin is not in the act itself. The measure of sin has to do with the one against whom we sin. And so this rebellion brought very great judgment, not only upon them, but upon all of their ancestors, including us. And having inherited this sort of judgment that's upon humanity, we ourselves, every single one of us, has decided to stray from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is what the Bible says. So we are sinful in nature, both by birth and also by choice. And because of that, we are under the tremendous judgment and what the Bible calls the wrath of God. Friend, every single one of us on this earth knows that this world is broken, and every single one of us knows that it should not be broken, and every single one of us in one way, shape, or form is trying to escape from that brokenness. We're doing all kinds of things to get out of it. We're doing all kinds of things to fix this world and to to make it better, but it's just like putting band-aids on cancer. It will never work. We pursue success in the hope that life will get better. We pursue material things in the hope that life will get better. We pursue the physical pleasures of this world in the hope that life will get better. We hope in relationships in the hope that life will get better. We hope in all sorts of things, trying to escape from a world that we know is broken, but it never works because the heart of our brokenness doesn't actually have to do with this world itself or our life in this world. The heart of our brokenness is that our relationship with God has been broken. And until the fundamental relationship each of us has with God is healed and restored, nothing else in this world can be right or go right. Period and end of story. We were created to image God, first of all, by being in an intimate relationship with God. Sin broke that relationship, and until the relationship is restored, there's simply no going forward. So all of our attempts to escape brokenness just leads us back into brokenness. And this really leaves us in a, a very hopeless situation. Because the only way to heal that brokenness and restore the relationship we have with God is first of all to find a way to to pay for or to rectify or to make right all the damage that was done by the sin of our forefathers and by the sin of our own hearts and lives. And that would come at such a massively high price that not one of us could ever even dream of paying for it or rectifying or making it all right. It would not be possible. If you owed somebody a trillion dollars, I wonder what the interest would be on that, just the daily compounding interest. Could you even dream about making 1% of the interest payments, much less paying down the principal? 
Well, our debt before God is much greater than a trillion dollars because, again, he is infinitely worthy, and therefore our sin is infinitely serious. And so there's just simply no way that we can rectify the implications of what we've done. And even if we could do that, God would then require us to walk in perfect obedience um, to him from the heart. Otherwise, we'd just begin the whole cycle again of rebellion and judgment and everything else that goes with it. Friends, I'm telling you, there is no way for us in ourselves to rectify and restore and heal the relationship we have with God. And so left to ourselves, we're in a completely hopeless situation. But herein lies the hope. Because at this point, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ enters the picture. The word gospel is a word that the Bible uses. It just means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God came to do for us what we could never do in ourselves or for ourselves. God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life on this earth so that whoever believes in him uh, has that obedience transferred to their account so that now we stand before God as though we have only and always perfectly obeyed him. In other words, by faith in Jesus Christ, Okay, we meet one of the requirements of our relationship with God being restored, perfect obedience. And then the Lord Jesus Christ willingly gave himself up to endure a torturous death so that whoever believes in him will now not have to rectify the damage that their sin has caused because Jesus has done that for us on the cross. He has paid it all. The very last words Jesus spoke, well, almost the very last words Jesus spoke on the cross were this, it is finished, meaning that all the requirements for salvation have been met. So when we put our faith in Christ, friend, what happens is our sin transfers on to him. His righteousness transfers on to us, and our relationship with God is restored. The fundamental brokenness of our lives is healed, and then life can begin anew. Life can begin afresh. In fact, not just life on this earth, but eternal life, true life, hope-filled life. And not only that, but Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day after he was buried so that whoever believes in him also now has in himself or in herself the promise of resurrection life. Jesus once said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. It's not just that I was resurrected, it's that I am the resurrection. It's not just that I have life, it's that I am life. And then Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never die, but will live forevermore. That's the promise, beloved. That's the promise of eternal life. And all of that is granted to us simply by believing in him. Forgiveness of sins, perfect righteousness, and the hope of eternal life so that death no longer has mastery over, over us. All of that comes to us by the simple act of faith, by saying to God, I believe in what you have done for me, for all humanity, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only true hope of life, friend. Now when Peter says that God has caused us to be born again, what he means is that God himself has granted us the grace to put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we might be forgiven and restored and healed, not only in ourselves, but with God. And one of the reasons that the great name of God is to forever be blessed is because he has acted on our behalf to give us this kind of life. And because he has given us this kind of life, he has also given us an eternal hope that simply cannot be taken away. Friend, Christian hope is a living hope because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ who can never die and who lives forevermore. The reason our hope is indestructible is because the fountain of our hope is indestructible. The reason of our, that our hope uh, is eternal is because the fountain of our hope is eternal and you can have that hope too. Maybe right now you've been trusting in the things of this world and you've realized in the last couple of months that uh, your hope in this world is going to fade away. Your hope in this world is going to be taken away. Your hope in this world is not going to last. Maybe you've realized that in the depths of your heart. Well, I'm here to tell you that God has set you up to inherit now an eternal hope that can't be taken away. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you to do that now. God has given you all that you need to believe. 
and the only thing stopping you is your own hardness of heart. So humble yourself before God and believe. Let today be the day of your salvation. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ today, I want to encourage you to reach out to some Christian that you know and just ask them to show you what it means to walk with Jesus Christ day by day. And if they don't feel like they're in a place in their life where they're able to show you, just ask them to to bring you to church so that somebody there can, can walk with both of you and show you what it means to walk with Jesus Christ day by day. It's a very simple way of life. It's a very simple way of life. But it all begins like this. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will inherit everlasting life and a hope that cannot be destroyed. I'll be praying for you that God will give you the grace to believe even today. To help us better understand what God has done for us by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, Peter says that God has caused us to be born again so that we might receive an inheritance. This is the metaphor I'm talking about. He's, he's using the metaphor of an inheritance to help us understand what God has done. By faith in Jesus Christ, he's given us a hope that Peter is now likening to an inheritance that's better and more certain than ever, any inheritance we've ever hoped for or could even possibly dream of. It's an inheritance about which Peter says several things. In fact, he says four things. First of all, he tells us that this inheritance we gain by faith in Jesus Christ is imperishable, which is a word that simply means immortal. It's immortal. It cannot die, and therefore it can never be taken away. Second, Peter says that it's undefiled, which means that it's absolutely pure, it's absolutely good, it's absolutely true, it's absolutely healthy, it's absolutely life-giving. There are no toxins in the inheritance that God has granted to us. There is nothing in it that can even begin to produce a shadow of death in the life of those who believe. Third, this hope is unfading, which means that it will never lose its beauty. It will never be like the flowers of the field that are gorgeous and inspiring today, but then wither and die tomorrow. This hope is not like that. It's a hope that is beautiful now and will be beautiful tomorrow and the next day and the next month and the next year and the next decade and the next century and the next millennium. It will be beautiful forever and ever and ever and ever. It is an unfading hope. Finally, number four, Peter says that this hope is kept in heaven for us. That simply means that the hope God has for us has been stored up in the very presence of God and that it's being guarded by the very presence of God, by his great power, both now and forevermore, so that it can never be stolen, so that it can never be corrupted, so that it can never be taken away. And the word here for kept is a very strong word. It's actually, technically speaking, in the Greek language, it's a past tense word. So real literally, this would say for a hope that has been kept for us by God. But the way this kind of past tense works in Greek is that it means it's something that happened in the past and has everlasting results. So it's a hope that has been kept and is being kept and kept and kept and kept and kept for us by the Lord Jesus Christ or by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that it will never fade and it cannot possibly be taken away. Beloved, by faith in Jesus Christ, God has given us an eternal hope and he will not change his mind. God has given us an inheritance and he will not disinherit those who believe in Jesus. Period and end of story. Welcome to your reality. Many of us are facing crises that are related to the COVID-19 crisis. And who knows what's going to come of each of us and who who knows what's going to happen to the world. We may lose a lot in these days. I don't know. Kim and I may lose a lot in these days. I don't know. But here's what I know. If the world takes everything from us, they can take exactly nothing from us because we have inherited all things through the Lord Jesus Christ and the things of this world have always been fickle and fading anyway. This is the nature of the hope that God has delivered to us in Jesus Christ by a simple faith. This is the nature of the inheritance that he grants to everyone who believes. So again, if you have not believed, I urge you to believe.
And if you believe, I urge you to meditate and rejoice on the reality, the stability that is your life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can Peter be so sure that this is true? It seems like everything else in this life, just as solid as it seems, could just go away in a heartbeat. And it seems that way because it is that way. So how can Peter be sure? How can he look into the future and have a certain anticipation of what's to come? Well, it's not because of him. And it's not because of what believers are going to do to hang on to our inheritance. It's not about anything we're going to do for God or anything that we are before God. What's making Peter so confident is that he knows that God himself is guarding our inheritance in the way that a great king would guard a, a, a palace which he owns and in which he lives. The, the word here for guard is the word of a, of, of, a, of a great military protector. And ultimately, God himself is that guard. God himself is the protector. God himself is the keeper of our souls and of our hope and of our inheritance, beloved. And because God is keeping our inheritance, it cannot be taken away. And he does this in a most interesting and a most life-giving, a most inspiring, a most joy-producing way. He guards our inheritance by strengthening and igniting the passion of our faith for him and in him. In other words, he involves us in the process of guarding. He involves us by causing us to believe and believe and keep on believing. He involves us by causing us to hope and hope and to keep on hoping. He causes us to be involved in this by causing us to cling to him and cling to him and keep on clinging to him in everything that he has promised to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, one day when we come into his presence, and we see the glory of all that has been revealed to him, we will join Peter, we will join all the host of heaven in saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how that will be the song of our hearts, how that will be the cry of our hearts in that day. Since these things are so, Peter goes on to say this in verses 6 through 7, and if you'll look there with me and read those verses with me again, he writes, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From the day that we first received the great mercy of God in Christ, Christian people begin to live a life of glorifying God and of rejoicing in Jesus together. We begin to inherit the joy that God grants to all those who believe in him. We begin to inherit the implications of the hope that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. But this doesn't mean that suddenly, as soon as we believe, that all things on earth go well for us. This does not mean that suddenly all things on earth turn out the way we want them to turn out. This doesn't mean that on this earth that we no longer suffer or that we're no longer tested or that we no longer endure trials. This doesn't mean, in fact, that we do not grieve when we face various things like the COVID-19 crisis and all that's associated with it or like losing our financial security or experiencing depression or enduring relational difficulties or dealing with a troubled child or unhealthy parents or mourning the death of a loved one or of several loved ones in a short span of time or of facing temptation or facing opposition because we have been faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to people that we love and people that we want to know the hope and the, the, the joy of knowing him and all that's implied in that. In some ways, believers actually grieve more than people who don't believe in Jesus because we understand more of the depths of, of why suffering exists and what it's about. We understand more of the depths of the fact that, that suffering is a, a visible and experiential symbol of the horror of our rebellion against God and against the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand more about the nature of suffering, and so in some ways we grieve even deeper than those who grieve without hope. But the fact that we have come to know and believe and have uh, unfadable, untakeable, unshakable hope in Jesus Christ does mean something. 
It means that though we grieve, we also rejoice even in the midst of our trials because we know that no trial can ultimately destroy our joy. No trial can ultimately take our joy away from us. In fact, we know because of what God has revealed to us that our trials will only work to serve us. Our trials will only work to strengthen the faith that we have been granted to put in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, every trial in this life is like a furnace. It's a furnace designed by God. and He puts his people inside that furnace and he turns up the heat so that all of the impurities of our faith can be taken away and so that our faith itself can be purified until we have a perfect hope in him, a perfect trust in him, a a perfect belief in him, a perfect joy in him. That's what God is up to in the midst of our trials. And so as a Christian endures trials, we grieve. We don't pretend that we're not grieving. We don't need to pretend that we're not hurting when there are plenty of things to be hurting about. We don't run from our trials. We don't hide from our trials. We don't try to medicate our trials. We allow the trials to wash over them because we know that they are the theater of God in which he is strengthening our faith. Again, here's how Peter put it. God grants us trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, for those who believe, our trials can only work for us and they cannot ultimately work against us. You see, it's easy to believe when it's easy to believe, right? It's easy to believe in bless in the blessings of God when we look around our lives and, and it looks like the blessings of God are present there everywhere. It's just easy to believe when life is easy. But it's very hard to believe when life is not easy. It's hard to believe in the goodness of God and in the greatness of God and in the graciousness of God and in the power of God and in the nearness of God when it seems like the whole world is crumbling around us, when it feels like we're suffering beyond our ability to endure. But it is the very presence of the mercy and the grace and power of God in the midst of our trials that proves that our faith is real. It proves that our faith is being guarded by God and not by ourselves. That proves that our faith Uh, will stand not only the test of the good times, but it can stand the test of any time. It proves that our faith is actually sincere. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. I really appreciate the way that he put this. Warren Wiersbe was a pastor and scholar. For a time, he had a radio show that was pretty influential throughout the country. A guy I have great admiration for. He said this. He said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Think about that. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted because, he said, if our faith falters in the midst of trials, it only proves that we had no faith at all. But if our faith is put into the furnace of trials and it stands the test of those trials, it it will come out even purer on the other side. It will come out to be a praise to God and it will come out to be a greater and greater and greater joy to our souls. So with that sort of picture in mind of how God magnifies joy and hope through trials, I just want to address a couple practical questions now. First of all, what does it mean to say that our faith is purified by the trials of this life? What does that look like practically from day to day? What are we actually talking about here? In some ways, that this language of, of purif- purifying faith um, can just sound like ambiguous religious language and not really have a lot of meaning for us. So what does it mean? Well, the word faith means belief and trust, both things. And I, I like to envision it as a, as a coin, the two sides of a coin, belief on one side and trust on the other. And this just makes sense because if we believe in God, we also trust in God. And if we trust in God, we also believe in God. They're two sides of a coin. They're two peas in a pod. They necessarily and inseparably go together. So let's start with the issue of belief. As we endure the various trials of life, Our belief in God is strengthened because we begin to see with new depths of insight that all God has said is true. So for example, 
And we listen to the Lord and respond to his counsel to us to take our feelings of anxiety and instead of becoming locked in anxiousness, we just bring those things to the Lord in prayer. When we hear his counsel to take the cares of our hearts and cast them upon the Lord and cast them upon the Lord and cast them upon the Lord again, then we come to believe that what he said is true, namely, that as we cast our cares upon him, his peace will be granted to us. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God through Jesus Christ will guard your hearts from fear and your minds from doubt, both now and forevermore. This is how God works. Now, it's one thing to read that text, which, by the way, comes from Philippians chapter 4. It's another thing to you know, have a basic kind of belief in the contours of what it says. But it's a whole other thing to go through the trials of life and to feel the anxieties of this life and to listen to the counsel of God, not to give in to the anxiety, but to pray. And then we pray and God actually gives us his peace. Okay, when that happens, our belief in the words of God and in the character of God grows. I remember once years ago, Kim and I were facing some really serious trials, very difficult things. And we were going to have to make a major, major shift in our lives that was just so hard to even contemplate. And I remember as I was thinking through the details of this decision day by day by day, I remember just feeling overcome with anxiety. One morning I woke up literally with such a strong knot in my stomach that I felt like I could barely even stand up straight. And I remember just bolting out of bed and saying to the Lord, Lord, this is just wrong. I'm a Christian man. I've been born again into a living hope, and why should I be just, just overcome with anxiety like this? I don't understand, Lord. Please help me. And as I sat there before the Lord and just waited to hear his counsel to me, my sense of what he said to me is, Charlie, if you will actually pray, I will actually give you my peace. And I realized in that moment that I had been thinking about the situation and calling it prayer, but I had not been casting my cares upon the Lord. And so that very moment, I dropped to my knees. I remember exactly where I was. I dropped to my knees and I cast my cares upon the Lord. And in that very session of prayer, the peace of God, it literally just washed over me. I don't even know how to explain it to you, friends. It's like a flood. It's like you're standing in a shower and suddenly the water becomes the, uh, starts to come down on you. Next thing you know, your whole body's wet. Well, that's what I felt like. The peace of God belonged to me. And I grew in belief. I believed that what God says is true. This is what happens to our faith in the trials of life. Very closely associated to this, as we endure the trials of life, our trust in God grows. For example, maybe some of you right now are facing financial crises because of this COVID-19 thing. Maybe your hours have been cut back, or maybe you've lost your job, or maybe some things you were planning aren't going to work out. I don't know, maybe... Some of you are going to lose your businesses. I don't know. Maybe your sense of financial stability is going to fall out from under you right now. Well, I will not because I cannot promise to you that everything's going to turn out the way that you want it to turn out. I will not because I I cannot promise you that God is going to provide everything you want in the way that you want it and in the time that you want it. I don't know. You may lose things on this earth. But what I know is that if you will walk through that trial by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you're going to learn is that he will grant to you everything you actually need. He will be your personal provider, and your trust will grow in him. It's one thing to know that God is a provider. It's another thing to experience God providing for you in ways that he knows is best for you. And, and by the way, sometimes he provides for us by taking things from us because he knows that we need something more valuable than that thing, namely faith, trust, hope. So again, I'm not talking about just put your hope in God and you know, everything's going to just turn out fine. It, it, you know, in an earthly way of thinking, it might not turn out fine. But ultimately, it'll turn out just fine. Because God works through all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God will become your provider. And as you watch God provide for your financial needs and your much more important emotional and spiritual and relational needs, you will come to say, God is my provider. And then when you hit the next trial, you'll trust him. Your trust will grow. You'll say, man, the Lord means it when he says it. 
And so by grace, by his grace, I believe it. Your faith will grow. Your trust will grow. This is how God uses trials to purify our faith, beloved. And I just want to add one more thing. This is something that struck me as I was driving around the other night praying about the message and wondering what I should say. It occurred to me that one one of the things it means that God purifies our faith through trials is that he focuses our attention on Jesus. Even the most mature of us hopes in Jesus, but we also put our hope in other things. And through the trials of life, those other things that we're hoping in get revealed. And as they get revealed by the grace of God, as we submit to his work in us, those other things get taken away. Or at least our hope in them gets taken away. And we begin to focus more and more. We begin to unify our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith becomes purified in the sense that it becomes more centered on Jesus himself. And the more we fix our eyes and center our hope on Jesus, so beloved, the more our our, our hope grows, the more our joy grows, the more our sense of the life that God has granted to us grows, the more that all the blessings of the inheritance of God in Christ in our lives grow or, or our experience of those blessings. There's probably more to be said, and I want to encourage you to talk about that with one another. What does it practically look like for your faith to be purified in the midst of trials? But I think I've, I've said enough to help you, you know, go down a particular road and and begin to gain understanding of what that looks like. So I just want to address one more question real quick. Namely, in this process of purifying faith, what, what part does God have for us to play? What does he want us to do? As trials hit us, what are we as his people supposed to do? Well, let me put it to you this way. Our faith is purified through various trials when we walk through those trials by faith. Let me say that to you again. Our faith is purified as we walk through various trials when we walk through those trials by faith. When we walk through those trials by putting our trust in the Lord God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we trust him by looking to his word, listening to his word, I mean like literally pushing play and listening to his word or reading his word and taking his counsel to heart and learning by his grace and power to apply it to our lives. Our faith will be purified as we trust him by praying and casting our cares upon him, casting our anxieties upon him, and listening to his counsel and walking in this way, not letting ourselves be overcome by anxiety or not thinking that we have to solve the problems that we're facing or that someone else is going to solve the problems that we're facing. Our faith will be purified as we trust the Lord and sing his praises even in the midst of difficulties, as we give thanks to his great name even in the midst of fiery trials. Our faith will be purified as we trust in him and walk with our brothers and sisters in Christ who can bear the burden with us and who can strengthen our faith and who can call us to to account when we're thinking improperly or acting in a way that's not pleasing to God, who can also encourage us when the trials just feel so hard, like, like we're not even going to get through. Oh, God has been so gracious to us in granting us one another. And this is one of the great ways that our faith purifies through trial, is by walking through those trials together and not alone. Just the other night, Kim and I had the opportunity to, to pour our hearts out before our community group and many things that we're enduring right now. And oh, how I left that virtual meeting. I left so encouraged just because my brothers and sisters in Christ had a heart to hear what we're going through right now and to to pray for us and to express the love of God in Christ to us. And beloved, because of that, my faith grew. Our faith can be purified and grow through trials if we will determine to obey God even in the midst of those trials, if we will determine not to put our life in Christ on lockdown, on quarantine until the trial is over. Just just one example, Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples. And oh, the blessing that belongs to those who will obey that command even when you yourself are going through trials and you feel like your life is going to fall apart. Oh, blessed is the one who takes them their eyes off of themselves and puts their eyes onto Jesus and onto his mission in the world so that you can be used as a vessel of grace even when you're so much in need of being an object of the grace of God in Christ. 
Oh, recently, in recent days, I have had so many opportunities to share the gospel with people, and there's just such an amazing joy involved in it. Because if I didn't know Christ, I'm not even sure how I would be functioning right now. Beloved Kim and I are going through it. One of our sisters in Christ the other night at our community group said that everything we're going through right now reminded her of Job, just all the waves of suffering that hit his family. We're not quite to that level, but we're, we're going through a lot. But oh, what a joy it is that because of the power and presence of Jesus, we're not completely overwhelmed and shut down by these things, and we're still available to him as vessels of grace. And I say this to the glory of his name, not to the glory of our name. Oh, the joy of a faith that will say, Lord, please use me even in the midst of my trials. Oh, Lord, please don't let me become all wrapped up in myself and all self-centered in the midst of my trials. But let me still yet be a blessing to others by the power of your hand and for the glory of your name. Again, beloved, more can be said. But I think this is the basic dynamics of how our faith is purified through trials, how our joy is amplified through our trials. I think this is a a good and basic picture of the part that we play in the process, a part that is fully empowered by God. And when we come to the end of our lives, when we breathe our last on this earth and we come face to face with God, Peter assures us that at that time our faith, this is verse 7, our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that could mean that when we see Jesus face to face that that praise and honor and glory is is heaped upon God because surely uh, forever and ever all heaven and earth will sing the praise of God. They will give praise to God. They will give honor and glory to God. Of course that's true. But Every commentator that I read this week and many that I've consulted throughout the years, I remember being in a class years ago and remember hearing a message at Bethlehem Baptist Church even many years before that. Everyone I've ever heard speak onto this text agrees that this is actually talking about a praise and honor and glory that is bestowed upon the people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's just really an amazing, an unbelievable demonstration of grace. Beloved, in response to our persevering faith, a faith that God granted to us and is guarding in us, in response to what God has done for us, he's going to lavish his blessings upon us. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, that's an example of glory, honor, and praise being bestowed on someone who conquered, who endured, who believed all the way to the end by the power of God and for the glory of God. And when God bestows this type of honor on us, beloved, it will not make us the center of attention. Oh, far from that. So far from that. What it will do is it will make God all the more the center of attention because all heaven and earth will say, how could God be so gracious as that? How could God be so kind as that? How could God's mercy be so great as that? And then we will join in that chorus of heaven and of earth, of all living things. We will join with Peter and say, from the depths of our hearts, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will bestow blessing on us for sure, but all the glory ultimately will go to him. Oh, indeed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, since... These are the dynamics of faith, and since faith is such a profoundly relational thing, in other words, faith is not just some kind of force or feeling or something like that. Faith is trusting in the person of God. Faith is believing in Jesus Christ and in all that he is and all he has accomplished for those of us who believe. Since faith is so relational and since the purification of faith takes place as the children of God walk through the trials of life with God, Peter brings his opening thought to a close in verses 8 and 9 with these words. And if you'll please look there with me and let's read them again. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Those who oppose 
Christianity often scoff at us and say that we're just believing in some guy we've never met and that we've never seen. And I suppose in some sense that's true. But what they don't understand is that by the presence and the ministering, revealing power of the Holy Spirit, we actually have met Jesus Christ. And in some very real sense, we have actually seen him by faith, not by sight. The Apostle Paul was granted an unusual gift of seeing something of the glory of Jesus on this earth. Stephen, the deacon who was martyred in Acts chapter 7, was granted an unusual gift to see something of the visible glory of Jesus. But even they only saw his glory in part. The vast majority of us have not had a visible experience, but we have had a true experience. We have seen him by faith. We have beheld him by faith. And we know him in truth. We uh, have never seen Jesus face to face. That's true enough. But we still love him with a depth and an intensity of love that's very hard to explain, but that's also absolutely impossible to deny. Because, again, in some sense, we have actually seen him. And in many senses, we do actually know him. We profoundly know him. And when we breathe our last breath, when we find ourselves in the manifest presence of Jesus, those of us who have been walking with him day by day through faith like this, we will be looking into the face of a person who is not a stranger to us. Oh, surely we will be stunned by the absolute manifestation of his glory. Surely we will be driven to our knees. Surely we will come to life in a way we've never experienced life before, but we will not be meeting a stranger on that day. We will simply be united with the one with whom we have been walking together with other believers all these years, all these decades, all this time. We will simply come into the presence of the one who has loved us and loved us and loved us and lavished his great mercy upon us and given hope to us and magnified his joy in us. Because then we have a living, ever-purifying, life-giving, joy-producing hope, because we have this kind of relationship with God through, Lord, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says that our souls are filled with a joy that is quite literally inexpressible, and it's a joy that's filled with the glory of the great mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that that sounds awfully idealistic, and I know that this believer doesn't always feel that intensity of emotions, but I'm telling you, in any season of life, if I just stop to fix my eyes on Christ and see the an ending hope of what God has done for me, my heart is filled with these very things and so is yours. And if you're not feeling that right now, I just want to encourage you not to think about that and rather to determine to fix your eyes on God, set your heart on God, stare him in the face, seek him heart to heart until this joy becomes yours because the truth is if you've believed in Jesus, it's already yours by inheritance. It is already yours and one of the reasons this joy is so hard to explain and so, so inexpressible is because sometimes it just flat out doesn't make sense. When you go through so many trials that have so many potentially devastating implications, it just doesn't make sense to be happy, to have joy, to have a sense of hope, to have a sense of purpose in life, to have a sense of resolve, to live for the glory of Christ and the good of other people. It, it just doesn't make sense unless... Unless God is with you, and God is for you, and God is giving these things to you, God is working these things in you, God is making a blessing of you, then it makes perfect, perfect sense. That is why this joy inside of us is literally inexpressible and filled with glory. It is filled with the glory of a person who is in a relationship with the living God. One of the reasons we possess this joy in life is because we're slowly inheriting now what we will fully inherit later. As Peter says at the end of verse 9, we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, namely the salvation of our souls. In other words, through the daily relationship we have with Jesus and the trials that we endure, we are losing our desire for this world day by day by day, situation by situation. We are losing our desire uh, for uh, the desires of our flesh, for the things of our flesh, for the, for the false things in which we hope day by day by day. God is just stripping them away from us. 
We're becoming more and more and more free from the influence of the one who has the power over sin, namely Satan himself. And because we're overcoming the flesh and the world and our spiritual enemies by faith, by the power of God and the enduring hope of Jesus Christ, because of that, oh, oh, beloved, we are inheriting our salvation already. We're obtaining the thing that we're ultimately hoping in. We're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ day by day. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take that away. So I pray, beloved, with all of this in mind, I pray that you will be unusually, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) I pray with all of my heart that you will be unusually encouraged on this most unusual Easter. I pray with all of my heart that you will think about the great mercy that God has lavished upon you in Christ and that you will rejoice in him. I pray with all of my heart that you will think in depth about the hope that he has granted to you and the inheritance he has promised to you and that you will rejoice in who he is and what he has accomplished for you. I pray that as you meditate upon these things and receive the fresh ministry of God in Christ, that your anxiety about the present worldwide crisis and all that's involved in it will will fade away. I'm not saying that we won't still grieve over this trial. As Peter said, we grieve through trials. We grieve through trials but we grieve as those who have hope. And I just pray, I guess what I'm saying is I pray that that hope would have a louder voice in your heart than the grief would have in your heart. I pray that the the hope you have in your heart would overwhelm everything else so that you have a true and enduring joy in Christ. Oh, beloved, I pray that as you meditate on what God has done for you, his son, his daughter in Christ, oh, I pray that his inexpressible joy would belong to you. Let me pray for that now. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are the God of great mercy. We thank you that you are the God who has granted us such amazing and eternal things. We thank you that you are the God of hope who gives us an indestructible hope and therefore a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, and a a sense of resolve to not only live but to bear much fruit in this life. Oh God, we thank you. When the whole world is being shaken, we're learning that you cannot be shaken and your hope cannot be shaken and the gospel cannot be shaken and our inheritance in Jesus can never be taken away. Oh God, how we thank you. Father, for those who still don't believe in you, I pray that you would pour your mercy upon them even now and cause them to be born again to this living hope. And for those of us who have already been born again, oh God, cause us to understand more of what you've done that we might rejoice and give glory and honor and praise to your name. Indeed, now, we even now begin to sing the praise that we will sing to you forever. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen. God bless you this Easter, beloved, as you celebrate the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you now to sing the closing song and then to spend some time with your family discussing the sermon and the songs and praying for one another and demonstrating the love of Christ to one another. And with that in mind, let me bless you now in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and the provider of an indestructible hope, may he bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord God Almighty lift up his countenance over you and give you fresh faith and hope and joy both now and forevermore for the glory of his name, for the enduring joy of your souls and for the blessing of your neighborhood and of the nations. I bless you in his name and for his glory. God be with you all and happy Easter. Hey, let's do this again one more time. He is risen. Jesus is risen. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen. Amen. And again, God be with you all.